desperate times call for desperate measures. Right? No doubt you've probably heard that phrase before. You've probably used that phrase. You've certainly heard that phrase in movies. And it speaks to how we respond when things get desperate in our lives. Do we respond by doing nothing or do we try to take matters into our own hands? It's the idea that the kind of action that we need to take has actually got to match the seriousness of our situation. Right? If a patient's life is in danger, a doctor may take some drastic measures to prevent the worst possible outcome, their death. In World War II, in order to conserve resources and support the war effort, the United Kingdom started rationing food and other, resor- other resources. Desperate times called for desperate measures. But as a Christian, where is the first place that we turn when we are desperate? Where do we turn when we are desperate? What measures do we take in times of trouble? In our text today, we find King David in a desperate situation. His enemies, they surround him. They're attacking him with their words. But when David is desperate, he doesn't take matters into his own hands. He doesn't try to repay evil for evil. That's not what he does. Instead, when he's desperate, he gets dependent. He gets dependent. For David, desperate times called for greater dependence upon God. And his response in desperate times is instructive for us in how we can respond biblically when troubles arise, even in our own lives. David redirects us to the one who is our confidence in troubled times, which is exactly what we'll see in Psalm 3. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 3. The past two weeks, we've been considering uh, the Psalter, and in particular, Psalms 1 and 2, which serve really as a gateway into many of the themes of the Psalter. We saw that even just the past two weeks. And in Psalm 1, we learn that those who devote themselves to God's word, they are those who are actually blessed. That the truly successful life is one that saturates itself in the word of God. In Psalm 2, we learn that those who devote themselves to God's word are going to submit themselves to the rule of his son. That's what we saw in Psalm 2. But as we also saw in these psalms, that there are others who are not devoted to God's word, nor are they devoted to God's king. In Psalm 1, we looked at the advice of the wicked, the pathway of sinners, the company of mockers at the individual level. And then in Psalm 2, we saw that the wickedness right, of those people really came to a global scale. We saw the nations raging, the peoples plotting in vain. We saw it on a global scale. And God's response to the nation's rage against him was to install his king upon his throne and his rule would extend to the ends of the earth. And now in Psalm 3, what we have is a personal example of that very thing from Psalm 2. That's how Psalm 3 relates to Psalm 2. And if you look at the top of Psalm 3, it's got a title that really gives us a lot of background to this psalm. It's known as a superscription, or else it's just called a title to Psalm 3. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, there are 14 of these kinds of titles throughout the Psalms, right? And they're all referring 
to some historical event in David's life. This is the very first one that we get in the Psalter. And this one comes from 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 17. And in that story, we see David's own son Absalom join the ranks of those people who are plotting and conspiring against the king, like what we saw in Psalm 2. His very own is now conspiring against him. But really to get the whole backstory, we've got to go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. David had just committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband. He had, he had her husband murdered. Now clearly this is not how God's king was supposed to rule, right? That's the whole point of Psalm 1, right? His life and his reign were to be shaped by the word of God as he meditated upon it day and night. That's what his rule and his reign was supposed to look like. So the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to tell David that he has sinned and he's actually despised God's word by doing what is evil. And the consequence of David's sin is that the sword would never leave David's house. It would never leave his house. God says to him, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. Well, God does not play around with sin. He doesn't. Not even the sin of his own king. As Jerry Bridges once put it, God, being infinitely holy, has an infinite hatred of sin. And for David, the consequence is war within his own family. David's son, Absalom, murders his half-brother Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. Talk about family dysfunction. Absalom then flees Jerusalem. He's gone for three years. David loved Absalom. He longed to go after Absalom. But he didn't. Neither did David actually correct Absalom for what he had done. Until finally Absalom returned for two years and yet rarely ever saw his father. And during that two-year stint in Jerusalem, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel and led a coup against David. David's closest friends and advisors joined in the revolt. And David left Jerusalem weeping as he ascended the Mount of Olives on the run to save his life. This is where Psalm 3 arises out of. This is the situation in the context that David is in. As it's been said in this prayer, David realizes that neither a son's love nor popular acclaim can serve as a person's worth or security. Friends, the Bible is raw. It is raw. And yet the Psalms speak into those raw situations of your life with wisdom and with truth for navigating these troubling times. That's what it does. As we'll see in Psalm 3, when times are desperate, God's people learn greater dependence upon him. So if you would read along with me in Psalm 3. Listen as I read. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. 
But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. I think the main idea that we see right here with David is this. That God's character fuels our confidence to face every conflict. God's character fuels our confidence to face every conflict. I think that's the point of the text that we see here. Life is going to have its troubles, but ultimately our assurance in the midst of our adversity is God's character. And in this psalm, David gives us three aspects of our response in such troubled times. We see three things. Number one, we see our candor or our honesty, our candor about our conflict in verses 1 to 2. The second thing that we see is our confidence in God's character in verses 3 to 6, our confidence in God's character. And then the third thing we're going to look at is our cry for God's help in verses 7 to 8. So let's look at point number one, our candor or honesty about our conflict. Nobody likes a complainer. Nobody does. Right? If you do, you're a glutton for punishment. If you like to listen to somebody moan and groan and complain all day. Nobody likes to listen to someone complain. Right? Your parents did not like listening to you complain when you were a child. And you know what? I bet if we were to actually poll all the parents today, I would assume they'd probably say the same of their own children. They don't like to listen to them to complain. However, this psalm begins with one who actually does want to hear the complaint of his people, which is interesting. When we hear a word like complain, I think our immediate reaction clearly is negative. But in the psalms, we've got the biblical category for godly complaint, and it's the category of lament. Biblical lament. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mercy, Pastor Mark Vergop reminds us that in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's the language of a people who believe in God's sovereignty, but who live in a world of tragedy. That's what a lament is. Psalm 3 is a lament psalm. And in verses 1 and 2, David is bringing his complaint before the Lord, and he is not raising his fist in anger at God, nor is he just living in denial as if nothing is wrong with his situation. I mean, after all, anger only makes matters worse. Denial doesn't alter the reality of one's pain. No sense in doing that. Instead, David is honest about his situation. He isn't complaining about God. He is bringing his complaint to God. 
He's honest about his pain in the injustice of his enemies, and the Lord actually invites it. He invites it in to come and to lament and to bring his complaint before him. David says in verse 1 that his foes are increasing, they're attacking him, and the weapons of his enemies are their words in verse 2. Look at what it says in verse 2. There is no help for him in God. Understand, they're not saying that David that God can't help David. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that it's useless for David to turn to God because he's God forsaken. Not that God won't help David, not that God can't help David, but God won't help David. David is God forsaken. That's what they're saying. That God has removed his blessing from him as his anointed king. To make matters worse, remember these foes, right? Remember who they are. They are those that are closest to David. Those from his own family. We think of Ahithophel, David's trusted advisor. If you go back and read 2 Samuel 15 through 17, Ahithophel joined them. That was David's closest advisor. The one whom everybody revered of his counsel. Not only that, his son Absalom, the son that he loved, leading a revolt against him. For these words to come from them only put salt in the wound. When you're in a helpless situation and you hear those closest to you say that there is no help for you in God, your helplessness only becomes more helpless. And in reality, I think David's situation may not be far from our own. Maybe you have children, you've got parents who've betrayed you with their words or a former spouse who's done the same to you. And still more often than not, it's not just the words of others, but even those that we actually tell ourselves. You do know that we can often be our own worst enemy. We can be our own worst enemy. Maybe we commit the same sin repeatedly, and then we begin to falsely believe that because of such repetitive sin, God does not want to hear from us anymore. You know what? God doesn't care anymore. He is fed up with you confessing the same sin over and over and over. Maybe you feel apathetic toward God. It's been a while since you prayed. It's been a while since you spent any time in the Word. And so that cycle just continues because we falsely believe that God doesn't help those who don't help themselves. Brothers and sisters, we can often be more certain about our sin than we are the mercy of God. We can often be more certain about our sin than we are of the mercy of God. Rather than practicing confession and being honest about our situation, what do we do? Instead, we live in self-condemnation. And our own hearts betray the truth of who God says that he is for us in Christ. But don't forget who David actually addresses right here to even begin this psalm. Who is he addressing? It's the Lord, in all caps right there. Right? This is the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God. The one who entered into covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, just chapters even before he had committed all those sins and had all this revolt going on in his life. God does not betray his promises to his people. And it's the exact same for us. It's the same for us. God entered into covenant with us through the blood of his own son, shed on the cross for us, so that there is always help for us in God. In our sin, we are forsaken. 
through faith in Jesus, we are now accepted by God, never to be forsaken again. So as Christians, what do you do when you are surrounded by such God-forsaken words in your life? When you are the one producing such God-forsaken words in your life, what do you do? Well, like David, we get honest with God. That's what we do. Honesty gets us on the pathway to receiving God's help. It's not a license to just vent self-centered rage at God. That's not what this is. It's an act of faith in God to provide hope and help when you are hurting. That's why we need honesty with God. And we do this by bringing our questions, bringing our frustrations, bringing our fears before the Lord. To give you an example of this, it comes from counselor Bob Kellerman's life, and he gives an example of his own life where he lost his father at the age of 22. But it wasn't just that he lost his father. He'd shared the gospel a number of times with his father, but yet his father never came to believe or came to profess faith in Christ. And so Kellerman brings his complaint to God and he says, what's the use? Why did I pray? Why did I witness and share? Why should I ever pray again? Why should I ever try again and trust again? Why does everyone else's parent accept Christ in a glorious deathbed conversion? Why can't I have assurance of my dad's presence with you? Right, you hear the questions, you hear the frustration, the turmoil that's within him. His prayer is honest about the hard reality of his, of his own father's death. And so, brothers and sisters, you don't have to live in denial of your pain. You also don't have to respond in rage to God. You can be honest with God precisely because he is your help. In fact, he actually encourages us to come to him, right? Psalm 62, verse 80 encourages us to pour out our hearts to him. Why? Because he is our refuge. You can be honest with God in your turmoil. So where do you need to get honest with God in your trouble? What questions do you need to bring to him? Frustrations that you're dealing with? What are some of the fears that you have going on in your life right now? You can be honest with God about those very things. And when we do, we don't stay in our complaint, right? We don't just complain to complain. That's not, that's not going anywhere. Right? We don't want to end up in a cul-de-sac of complaint. That's not what we want to do. Instead, lament is a means to an end. And with every single lament in the scriptures, there is what? A turning point that happens. That's what we see in point two. So point number two, our confidence in God's character, verses three to six. In this section, David shows us how to respond in faith when troubles arise. And what we see is that God's character ought to affect, it ought to affect our conduct. That when we rightly understand who God is and what he's done, Christians can be the most confident of all people in your suffering, which is incredible to think about. I don't know that many of us probably think about our confidence in the midst of suffering. And yet for Christians, when you understand who God is and what he has done for you, you can be the most confident of all people in your suffering. David shows us how to get there. We first need to look to God. 
In the midst of these threats, David turns his trouble into trust. Look right there in verse 3. What does he begin with? The turn. But you. But you. In his suffering, David doesn't get stuck in complaining, but gains confidence by considering God's character. He looks to the Lord. Look at what David declares about God that really fuels his confidence in him. The first thing that he says right there about God is that he is his shield. That God is his shield. The shield that David refers to right here is one that was used in combat to protect the arm, to protect someone's side, right? Their torso region. It gave just kind of protection on one's side of their body. But what David is saying is that, no, no, no. The Lord is a better shield than that. He is a shield, what? Around me. The kind of protection that God gives to his own people is full protection. It's complete protection, not partial protection. When trouble comes, there's a lot of places that we can look to for security, but only one that can provide full protection. Well, not only is God his shield, but he also says that the Lord is his glory. He's his glory. David's enemies were taking his kingdom from him. What were they doing? They were stripping him of all his glory. That is his earthly glory. And yet David reminds us that no matter what earthly glory we lose, we have all of the glory that we need in the Lord. We can be stripped of our position. You can be stripped of your possessions. You can be stripped of all praise out of the mouth of people. Yet when you are the Lord's, you have all of the glory that you will ever need for all eternity. No one can strip you of glory when it's wrapped up with the all-glorious one. Nobody can do that. And praise God for that. The third thing that we see right here is that the Lord is the lifter of David's head. So he is our shield. He is our glory and the lifter of his head. Kings in the ancient world would often humiliate their enemies by putting their foot on the necks of the kings that they conquered. David's enemies can publicly humiliate him. But guess what? God is the lifter of his head. He is the one that restores David's dignity and his honor. And so let's not forget, David is God's anointed king. Right? He is the one who put him there in the first place. The only one that can take David out of that position is God. Nobody else can do that. No matter how hard they try, they cannot strip that from him. And yet God is the lifter of his head. Friends, people can drag your name through the mud, but God is the one who has given you a new name. He has given you a new identity in Christ that will never fade. And in the end, he will declare that dignity and honor whenever he declares to you, well done, good and faithful servant. David has no idea how his circumstances are going to turn out, but what he does know, he knows his God. That's what he knows in all the troubles that he faces. The one certainty in uncertain times is the Lord. Knowing who God is for you is critical for continuing in every single con conflict that you're going to face in this life. So how well do you know your God? How well do you know 
God. When you read the scriptures, do you pay attention to how the biblical authors refer to God? I mean, the Psalms are just loaded with all of these images and these pictures about God. So in your suffering, do you recall those images to mind? In the Psalms, we see the psalmist refer to God in a number of ways. Right, just to name a few of these. These are only just a few. He's our righteousness, our defender, our watcher, our champion, our king. He's our judge and avenger, our deliverer, our shield, our refuge, rock, fortress, glory, stronghold, and the lifter of our head. He is our helper and our healer. I could just keep going on and on and on. Any kind of image you can think of, the psalmist has got it to be able to speak about who God is. This is what the psalms are all about. They give us these images. They give us these words to teach us to trust God in every single trial that you face, no matter how specific that trial is for you. You've got language in the midst of your trial that you can use as you approach God. No matter what high or low you face, you've got language. No matter what trouble you encounter, God's character meets you there to induce confidence within you for the conflict at hand. There are a lot of other things that David could have said about God. But each of these three things that he mentions right here, each of these aspects of his character speaks to his situation. It's the same thing for you. There are many aspects of God's character that you can use and recall and call to mind that are specific to your situation. So what's your situation right now? What aspect of God's character can you call to mind, can you meditate upon, can you use to regain trust in the Lord in the midst of your situation? Are you overcome with the thought of death as you begin to age year after year after year? Remember Psalm 23, the Lord is your shepherd. He has already walked through the valley of the shadow of death for you. He's already done it. Are you broken in your sin? What do we know about God from the Psalms? What do we know about God elsewhere? He is near to the brokenhearted. He's near to you. He enters into that brokenness and helps you. Brothers and sisters, your confidence in the Lord grows as you recount God's character. That's how that confidence grows within you in your suffering. The more that you know God, the greater your arsenal will be for every single battle. So that when intrusive thoughts come, physical suffering comes, you're ready to recount God's character in the midst of those situations. For David, God's character fueled his confidence in conflict. Notice how we see this in the text, which is amazing. We got the but you in verse 3. What do we see right here? repeated over and over and over in verses, three, in verses 4 to 6. I, but you, and because of who you are, I. And what does he say? I cry aloud to the Lord. I lie down and sleep. I wake again. I will not be afraid. When everything hit the fan for David, God's character shot his confidence through the roof. And it could do the exact same for you. And in particular, we see three things that it gave him. It gave him confidence to pray, it gave him confidence to rest, and it gave him confidence to not fear man. All of that is a result 
of considering and thinking upon the character of God. So first, let's look at confidence to pray there in verse 4. Prayer is an expression of our trust in God to provide what we cannot. David is confident that God is going to answer his prayer because he trusts that his God is his shield and defender. So that when he prays for help, he knows he's going to receive it, and he does. God answers. Brothers and sisters, when you know who God is for you in Christ, then you can pray with confidence that he will answer according to his character and will every single time. Every time. And when he answers, and he always does, that may not always come at once. And in fact, it may not actually come as you wish or want. But it's always aligned with his character and will. Trusting God to be who he says he is and to always act according to that character and will of his gives you confidence to pray. And that when you pray, you know he's going to answer according to that will. Secondly, he gives us confidence to rest in verse 5. Because God is who he says he is, David can rest. He can sleep, he can sleep because God does not slumber nor sleep, which is a glorious truth. He can lie down. Because God is awake to sustain his people through trouble. Now, this doesn't mean that David doesn't care about his son literally leading a revolt against him. (laughs) It doesn't mean that he doesn't try to strategize, right, and take necessary precautions. He does. He's going to do all of that. But though David doesn't have peace from trouble, he can still have peace in his trouble because of who his God is. He will not have peace from it, but he sure can have peace in the midst of it. God's character induces confidence within us to rest in restless times because God does not rest when he is sustaining your life. That's why, and that's a glorious truth. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for us. It actually shows us that we can rest even in the midst of our conflicts. Rather than lying awake at night, running through tomorrow's checklist, or maybe even thinking about that hard conversation that you had to have during the day, or that fear diagnosis from the doctor, instead, you can actually sleep at night. Because at the end of the day, those intrusive thoughts will not sustain you through the night. Only God can sustain you. The point of your trouble is to change how you engage it. It's to force you to look to God. He knows the trouble in your life. He sees it. And he does not sleep to sustain your life. You have one who is a far greater sedative than any sleeping pill will ever be for you. He is a far greater sedative. Thirdly, we see that his confidence is not in the fear of man. He does not put his confidence in man, right? It's not to fear man. David's circumstances have not changed and neither has his fear. Instead, his fear is informed once again by his God. And his identity has informed how David viewed his enemies. So after all, such wild circumstances, right, would induce the fear of God within, or the fear of man within any of us, right? If we are surrounded by thousands of those who are closest to David, we would all probably be fearing man at that point. But for David, he does the opposite right here. Notice what he says in verse 6. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who take their stand against me on every side. David 
had fears. He had fears. It just wasn't the fear of man. As author Ed Welch put it, being afraid is not wrong in itself. As creatures living in a sinful world, we should be afraid at times. The problem is when fear forgets God. When fear forgets God. Fear of man is fear run amok. David knows these men have power. They've got power in numbers. But he also knew that, he, that they had no power compared to the all-powerful and mighty God that he served. Brothers and sisters, recognize that when we fear others because they can expose us, reject us, or threaten us, we are viewing others bigger than our all-powerful God himself. And in that fear, we are giving others the power and right to tell us what to think, what to feel, what to do, rather than God himself. But like David, when you fear the Lord, it puts people's thoughts, it puts their words, it puts their threats into perspective. When you believe who God is and what he says about you, it evokes trust and it actually leads you to what? To pray, to sleep, and to cry out to him for justice, which is exactly what we see in our final point. Point number three, our cry for God's help, verses seven to eight. We began this psalm with David's enemies rising up against him in verse one. And what do you know? What do we see in verse seven? Now he calls on God to rise up against his enemies. And although David hasn't been delivered yet, he speaks of God's judgment as if it's already happened. Did you notice that in verse 7? He says right there in verse 7, You strike strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. As if this has already been done. God's already doing this. But David's certainty in God's deliverance presents, I think, a conflict for many of us. It presents us with a conflict. We read this and we struggle to think, my word, these guys are going to need some dentures. Their dental bill is going to be astronomical once the Lord gets done with them. But David is not being vengeful right here. He's not taking vengeance in his own hands and repaying evil for evil. Instead, he is committing it to God. He's doing what he's been doing the whole time. What is he doing? He is asking God to already just be who God is, to be holy, and in his holiness to be just and righteous in all of his ways. That's what he's doing. If God doesn't judge the wicked, then he's not holy, he's not righteous, and he's not just. And don't forget Psalm 2, right? The Lord installed his king on his holy mountain to rule, and God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 an enduring kingdom. You better be faithful to those promises. David is calling on God to do just that, to be faithful to his promises. And for David, there will be no deliverance without judgment. And it's the same for us, except that we come into this world as enemies of God in our own sin. We are ones in our sin who have joined the revolt against God's son, the high king of heaven. Rather than submit to him, we conspire against him in our sin. But here's the good news. David's greater son and king saved his enemies from death through death. He saved them from death through death. Like David, Jesus came to his own, but what? 
His own did not want him. They did not receive him. He too led a band of disciples up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he hung on the cross. He cried aloud on that holy mountain, and guess what? He went unanswered. And while on that cross, to pay for the sins of his enemies, his enemies, what do you know, were taunting him, saying, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. And the Lord did. He did. He delivered him from his death on the cross through death. So that all who deserve eternal condemnation may be saved and be able to confidently declare with David in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. For anybody who looks to Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is your declaration. This is going to be your declaration for all eternity. That's the whole thing of Revelation 7 that Tim just came up here and read. It is going to echo down in the halls of eternity where you are declaring salvation belongs to the Lord because he saved you from death through the death of the high king of heaven. That's gloriously good news for you. This is the reason that in every trouble and conflict that you face, you can live with confidence because you've been united to the king whose death and resurrection actually secures that salvation through his own death. You can respond to conflict with confidence in God's character because God's son really is your shield. He is your glory and the lifter of your head. You might face physical danger. You might lose your job. You might lose your spouse. You may even lose your life. But through it all, the Lord sustains your soul for that glorious day of salvation. Friend, if you haven't submitted to Christ as your king, then recognize your destiny is verse 7. It's verse 7. But here's the thing, it doesn't have to be verse 7 for you. It can be verse 8. It can be verse 8. God doesn't have to rise up in judgment against you in the end. He can rise up and actually deliver you from that judgment through the death and resurrection of his own son. So turn from joining the revolt against God's son in your sin and trust in him to deliver you from death to life through his own death and resurrection. You can have that kind of confidence right now by trusting in him. Verse 8 can be your end, not verse 7. There's one last thing that I want us to see. David concludes with the benediction right here. He concludes with a benediction. He says, may your blessing be on your people. May your blessing be on your people. Now, I think what's interesting about this is that this is actually an individual lament psalm. It's an individual lament. But David asked the Lord to let his blessing of saving help be with his people as they experience trouble as well. It's an individual lament psalm that's actually meant to be sung congregationally in the congregation of Israel. And it serves as a reminder to us that not only is the Lord with us personally in our troubles, but so are his people, the congregation, with us in our troubles. He has given each of us the church to rejoice with each other's joys, to bear one another's burdens and sorrows, right? Is this not what we 
we promise to one another in our church covenant. It's that very thing that we promise to one another. The local church is one of the means that God has given to each of us to protect us and to sustain us in the troubles of this life. On your own, you will not make it to the end. You need the church to remind you of God's promises. You need the church to lift up your head and to see God's character when you fail and when you are mourning. You need the church in that. You need the church's encouragement to keep you going when you feel like honestly giving up and leaving the faith. And you need the church's love to remind you of God's love for you when you condemn yourself. You need the church. Friends, this is how God, this is why God has given us one another to give us help on that dangerous journey. This is to be sung in the congregation. Friends, is this your view of the local church? Is that your view? Or does your view look more like a worldly understanding of what the church looks like? This is how it's understood biblically. The church is not going to be perfect. No church is ever perfect. But it is absolutely necessary for your growth in godliness and for you to help to receive help to persevere to the very end. So brothers and sisters, in times of desperation, there's good news. You actually don't have to turn to despair. You can depend upon the Lord to sustain your soul in the troubles that you face. Will you do that? Let's pray together.